I know all about IgG4-related disease, said no rheumatology fellow ever. Welcome to Rheumatology for the Royal College, where we aim to bring you reviews that will strengthen your knowledge going into exams and clinical encounters. We hope you'll find it useful and enjoyable, whether you're running, lifting, cooking, grocery shopping, driving, you get the idea. I'm your host, Dr. Kareem Ladakh, an American-trained Canadian rheumatologist. Before we start, my lawyer advised that I should say the information here only reflects what I have in my personal notes and should not be used in isolation in the management of patients, nor for your boards. I'd like to thank the McPherson Institute and Avi for supporting this podcast through their educational grants. However, it should be noted they have absolutely no editorial say in its production. Here's my elevator pitch. IgG4-related disease is an insidious, fibroinflammatory disorder that causes tumor-like lesions in nearly every organ system. It's slow-moving, but that shouldn't fool you because it can wreak major havoc and organ dysfunction if left untreated. It's the ultimate mimicker of cancer, infections, and other inflammatory disorders, making diagnosis quite difficult, and meaning that many individuals out there are going unrecognized. At this point, steroids remain the cornerstone of treatment but are really suboptimal because they A, lack efficacy at lower doses, and B, have numerous side effects. Conventional synthetic DMARDs haven't really been able to step up the way we were hoping they would, and even rituximab isn't perfect. Epidemiology Your classic patient with IgG4-related disease is going to be a middle-aged to elderly male. As an example, in type 1 autoimmune pancreatitis, the male-to-female ratio is 3 to 1. There are no accurate estimates of incidence. We used to think one new case per 100,000 people annually, but in more recent years, it seems like we're getting better diagnostically and recognizing this condition. So that number is now tripled to 3 for every 100,000 individuals. Mechanisms The two major underlying cell types driving IgG4-related disease are B-cells and cytotoxic CD4 T-helper cells. These are central to the underlying disease process of immune-mediated inflammation and fibrosis, which culminate in tumor-like masses that occur in virtually any organ system. Humoral immunity in particular is active whether you look at the degree of IgG4 class switching, hypergammaglobulinemia, or the way that serum B-cell expansion correlates with a patient's disease activity level. And this would explain why B-cell depleting therapy is so effective for IgG4-related disease. It's also worth mentioning that the IgG4 molecule itself is not clearly pathogenic and potentially just more of a bystander. Clinical Presentation IgG4-related disease is an insidious condition, meaning it creeps up on you and it moves slowly. Therefore, there is no such thing as acutely fulminant IgG4-related disease. It is not aggressively inflammatory and therefore will not cause fevers nor rapid organ failure. But while that slow evolution is characteristic, don't be fooled. It can still be highly destructive and sometimes even fatal. And the slow evolution means symptoms are often ignored or undiagnosed for months to years. In fact, by the time of diagnosis, up to 60% of patients have some degree of irreversible organ damage. Now, remember I said IgG4-related disease was only recognized about 15 years ago? 
What happened was some smart individuals found that patients repeatedly had coexistence of a variety of conditions previously thought to be unrelated single organ diseases. For example, autoimmune pancreatitis, inflammatory pseudotumors in places such as the orbits, Mikulitz's disease, Hormon's disease, Rydell's thyroiditis, and a bunch more. They found many of these patients had elevated IgG4 levels in their blood, and biopsies also showed similar histopathologic findings. Retrospectively, this is kind of unsurprising because IgG4-related disease can manifest in virtually every organ system, but has a strong predilection for certain ones. We'll go into more detail on each of these in a minute, but let's take a cursory look from head to toe. Starting right at the top, the dura layer of the meninges and the pituitary gland. Moving down just a little, the orbits, including the extraocular muscles and the lacrimal glands. Next, salivary glands. A little further down, the thyroid. Moving into the thorax, the lungs and pleura. And finally, in the abdomen, the pancreas, biliary tree, kidneys, aorta, and retroperitoneum. Now let's get a little deeper into the nitty-gritties of the dozen most commonly affected organ systems. Starting with number one, constitutional manifestations. Both fatigue and weight loss are common in IgG4-related disease. One frequently sees a 5 to 10 kilo, or for my American friends, 11 to 22 pounds, of weight loss. Patients also frequently complain of joint pains because they get arthralgias and enthesopathy. You'll notice I didn't say arthritis nor enthesitis because frank synovitis has not been demonstrated on histopathology. Number two, the orbits of the eyes. Decryoadenitis, i.e. inflammation of the lacrimal glands, which are the tear glands located under the upper outer eyelids, is a classical manifestation of this condition. If left untreated, it can lead to ocular sicca. Patients can also develop fibroinflammatory tumor-like masses, also known as pseudotumors, within the orbits of the eyes, or they can get inflammation of the extraocular muscles. All of these can result in generalized swelling of the orbital area, but if severe, can cause proptosis or protrusion of the eyeball from its socket. Number three, the salivary glands. So salivary gland inflammation, also known as sialadenitis, is common enough in this condition. Both the minor and major salivary glands are affected with enlargement and ensuing sicca. Now, there are two major differences between IgG4-related and Sjogren's syndrome-associated sialadenitis. The first is that, unlike in Sjogren's syndrome, the predominantly swollen gland is not the parotid, but the submandibular. The second is that, unlike in Sjogren's syndrome, you may actually see improvement in both the size of the gland and severity of the sicca symptoms if you treat these patients with immunosuppression. And before we wrap up with sialadenitis, I just want to mention Mikulitz's disease, M-I-K-U-L-I-C-Z apostrophe S, Mikulitz's disease. So you're aware of the term. This is a well-characterized condition with bilateral, painless swelling of the lacrimal and major salivary glands. And again, if treated early-ish, has a good potential for symptomatic improvement. Number four, ENT. Allergic and atopic symptoms are common in IgG4-related disease. That means rhinosinusitis, nasal polyps, nasal obstruction. This goes along with the fact that many patients have long-standing histories of allergies, asthma, a mild to moderate peripheral ease and aphilia, and high concentrations of IgE in their blood. 
Patients can also get diffuse inflammation of the pharynx or hypopharynx and Waldair's ring or pesky tumor-like masses that can occur in numerous ENT passageways, including the sinuses and even the middle ears, but these are way less common. Number five, thyroid. You may have heard the term Rydell's thyroiditis back in med school. This is yet another eponymous condition now recognized to be part of IgG4-related disease. It is a chronic inflammatory disease that fibroses the thyroid into a hard, woody, non-tender thyroid gland. The patient ends up hypothyroid, but that's not the biggest problem. The fibrosis itself is quite destructive and can extend outside of the thyroid and infiltrate local surrounding structures such as the airways. Number six, lymphadenopathy. IgG4-related lymphadenopathy is common and can be generalized or localized, affecting basically anywhere, just like this disease. Cervical, paraaortic, inguinal, retroperitoneal, supraclavicular, etc. Again, these are non-tender and usually one to three centimeters in diameter. Something to note about them. You'll later on hear me say whenever possible, try to get a biopsy to make the diagnosis of IgG4-related disease. But with lymphadenopathy, there's generally much less fibrosis within these lymph nodes, so you're not likely to make the diagnosis by biopsying one of them. In other words, don't biopsy IgG4-related lymphadenopathy unless you don't have a good alternate site. Next, number seven, vascular. The most commonly affected vessel in IgG4-related vasculitis is the aorta. Both the thoracic and abdominal aortas can be affected and can lead to inflammatory aneurysms. Now, unlike GCA or Takayasu's, IgG4-related aortitis is unlikely to spill over into the primary aortic branches such as the subclavian arteries. Along the same lines, number eight, periaortitis and retroperitoneal fibrosis. There are some terminology issues we should clarify here because I know I used to get really stuck on them. So firstly, Retroperitoneal fibrosis. This refers to an accumulation of fibroinflammatory tissue in the retroperitoneum, usually encasing the anterolateral aorta and common iliac arteries. Second term, Orman's disease. So, Orman's disease was a term we used to use back in the day when there was retroperitoneal fibrosis of unknown etiology. Fast forward to modern day terms. We call Orman's disease idiopathic retroperitoneal fibrosis, and IgG4-related disease accounts for about two-thirds of all idiopathic retroperitoneal fibrosis. So that's the terminology. The question now is, what does it look like? Well, the presentation of IgG4-related retroperitoneal fibrosis is often vague. Poorly localized pain around the general region of the back, lower abdomen, flanks, But the real issues arise when the fibroinflammatory tissues begin impinging on major structures and patients can develop obstructive symptoms. The classic example of this is when the ureters become blocked. And you can probably guess what happens next. Hydronephrosis and an obstructive AKI ensue. On imaging, it can look like a broad plaque across the retroperitoneum. And existing on the same spectrum as retroperitoneal fibrosis is mesenteric fibrosis, starting at the mesenteric root and spreading potentially even to mesh with retroperitoneal fibrosis. It has the same destructive potential, possibly encasing vital organs with severe consequences. Number nine, the lungs. IgG4-related disease can do tons of stuff here. Interstitial lung disease that looks like NSIP, 
ground glass opacities, pulmonary nodules, thickening of the bronchovascular bundles, which you can see on CT, and pleural thickening or pleural effusions. Patients can also develop fibrosing mediastinitis, which is similar to mesenteric and retroperitoneal fibrosis. Number 10, the kidneys. The classic IgG4-related renal manifestation is tubulointerstitial nephritis. Pathology will look the same as biopsies of other organs affected by IgG4-related disease. And really interestingly, these patients can be profoundly hypocomplementemic. It's something you want to be aware of, so you don't immediately assume your patient's got lupus nephritis or cryo. Imaging will show grossly enlarged kidneys and hypodense fibroinflammatory lesions on CT. Patients can also get a membranous nephropathy, but unlike wild-type membranous nephropathy, IgG4-related membranous nephropathy is not associated with the PLA2 antibody. And lastly, because we're releasing this episode in November, and November is largely Prostate Awareness Month, IgG4-related prostatitis is also a genitourinary manifestation of this disease. Now remember, IgG4-related disease is primarily a disease of middle-aged to older men that progresses very slowly. So most of the time, if a man has IgG4-related prostatitis, it's just assumed that his symptoms are secondary to BPH, naturally. However, the diagnosis of IgG4-related prostatitis is made when their BPH symptoms suddenly resolve after starting steroids. Number 11, autoimmune pancreatitis. This is the OG of IgG4-related disease. It was the first organ recognized to be associated with high serum IgG4 levels. When we talk about autoimmune pancreatitis, there are two types. Type 1 is the more common form and is characterized by a sclerosing lymphoplasmacytic infiltrate. Type 1 is the one associated with IgG4-related disease, whereas type 2 has a neutrophilic infiltrate, and that neutrophilia should be enough to tell you it has nothing to do with IgG4-related disease. Type 1 autoimmune pancreatitis, or IgG4-related pancreatitis, most commonly presents as painless jaundice induced by a concomitant IgG4-related sclerosing cholangitis. This is not primary sclerosing cholangitis. It's different and almost always exclusively happens with type 1 autoimmune pancreatitis. Half of these patients will develop an endocrine failure from pancreatic damage and therefore have a secondary diabetes mellitus, which obviously makes steroid treatment even more annoying than you thought. Along with endocrine failure, you can also have exocrine failure, and significant weight loss can ensue. If you want to prove this in your patient, just get a stool of last day's level. Now, as the doctor, you clearly need to differentiate IgG4-related pancreatitis with obstructive jaundice from pancreatic cancer with obstructive jaundice to reassure the patient because prognosis is completely different and to avoid an unnecessary Whipple's procedure. Right off the bat, I'm going to tell you that serum IgG4 levels are unhelpful because they can go up with pancreatic cancer, and in 20% of patients with autoimmune pancreatitis, the serum IgG4 level will be completely normal. But what can be very helpful here is a CAT scan in combination with either an MRCP or ERCP because the combination of what we call a quote-unquote sausage-shaped pancreas, meaning a diffusely enlarged pancreas with delayed uptake of contrast and a capsule-like low-density rim, in addition to irregular narrowing of the biliary ducts, is highly suggestive 
of type 1 autoimmune pancreatitis. And lastly, number 12, the CNS or central nervous system. IgG4-related disease doesn't usually affect brain parenchyma itself, but it will frequently cause a hypertrophic pachymeningitis, which is inflammation and thickening of the dura mater. Patients can also get a hypophysitis, affecting both the anterior and posterior pituitary glands with a variety of resulting hormone deficiencies. MRI can pick this up. So that's all 12 major organ manifestations. But if after all of this, you still just want to memorize some clinical phenotypes to help you conceptualize or memorize and therefore recognize IgG4-related disease, that's totally reasonable. Four have emerged from the cohort of patients used to develop the ACR-ULAR classification criteria. I don't think you need to memorize these, but if you want to think about manifestations in a different way, the phenotypes in order from most to least common are as follows. The first of four, pancreatohepatobiliary disease. This includes type 1 autoimmune pancreatitis and IgG4-related sclerosencholangitis. Number two, chronic periaortitis. This includes the whole group of retroperitoneal fibrosis, aortitis, and associated cardiac complications. Number three, head and neck limited disease. In this group, interestingly, we see many more young Asian females than we do in the other three phenotypes. Manifestations here might include orbital disease, including orbital pseudotumors, ENT manifestations, Rydell's thyroiditis, pachymeningitis, and hypophysitis. And lastly, number four of four is classic Mikulitz's syndrome with systemic involvement, meaning decryoadenitis, sialadenitis, interstitial lung disease, pancreatitis, and renal manifestations. And these patients tend to have quite high IgG4 levels. Diagnosis. IgG4-related disease should be suspected when a patient has a classic presentation, like retroperitoneal fibrosis, orbital pseudotumors, sclerosencholangitis, sialadenitis, decryoadenitis, autoimmune pancreatitis, etc. Diagnosis is based on the integration of your clinical, serologic, radiologic, and histopathologic data. None of these realms are sufficient in isolation to make the diagnosis. I'm going to say that again. None of these realms are sufficient in isolation to make the diagnosis. So let's break them down one by one to see what you should order on your patient and how to interpret results. Let's start with the lab work. First things first, the elephant in the room, serum IgG4 levels. How do you interpret them? Right off the bat, I'll say, you do not need an elevated IgG4 level for the diagnosis of IgG4-related disease. And an elevated IgG4 level does not automatically diagnose the disease either. Let me prove it to you. 20% of the patient cohort used to create the ACR-ULAR classification criteria for IgG4-related disease did not have an elevated IgG4 level. Certain classic IgG4 manifestations are also known to have an unimpressive IgG4 level, like those with retroperitoneal fibrosis. On the flip side, IgG4 serum levels can be elevated in patients with malignancies, like pancreatic cancer, infections, and other autoimmune diseases, like ankyovasculitis, which is a major differential diagnosis for patients with IgG4-related disease. I'm not saying that as a screening test, serum IgG4 levels are unhelpful. I'm simply saying that they represent a single data point and have to be interpreted in the context of your other data. Now, there are ways of improving the accuracy of the serum IgG4 level. 
For example, if you use a higher cutoff for the serum IgG4, it correlates with higher specificity for the diagnosis, which is great. And it also correlates with a higher burden of disease involvement. The problem, obviously, with the higher cutoff is that you lose lots of sensitivity. Then what else can you do? Well, you can compare the serum IgG4 level to the total IgG, or serum IgG4 level compared to IgG1 levels. So that, for example, a serum IgG4 to total IgG ratio of over 10%, or a serum IgG4 level to IgG1 level over 24% significantly improves the diagnostic accuracy of the serum IgG4 level. And this can be done regardless of whether or not the serum IgG4 level is even elevated. There are some other fancy tricks out there like measuring immunoglobulin RNA levels or class-switched IgG4 positive plasma blasts and certain autoantibodies, but for starters, these are not accessible for most of us. And secondly, they don't have enough data backing them yet, so not worth your time memorizing at all. By the way, just a little side tip, if you do have pachymeningitis you suspect to be related to IgG4-related disease, you can also measure IgG4 levels in the CSF. Okay, that's it. I'm done talking about serum IgG4 levels. Moving along to other lab tests, inflammatory markers can be elevated, particularly ESR, where a CRP tends to be normal unless the patient has aortitis or retroperitoneal fibrosis. If either the CRP or the ESR are markedly elevated, you need to consider another diagnosis like ANCA or multicentric Castleman's. About 30% of patients will have an elevated IgE and peripheral eosinophilia, regardless of whether or not they have ATP, so it's worth checking for. In terms of autoantibodies, nonspecific autoantibodies can be present, such as rheumatoid factor or ANA, but disease-specific antibodies such as an ENA, double-stranded DNA, or ANCAs should point you towards a different diagnosis. And lastly, hypocomplementemia can be helpful because it signals renal disease. Those are the labs. Let's now look at radiology. There are some nonspecific findings we frequently see, like gross organomegaly. But more and more, radiologic features are becoming better described, which strongly suggest IgG4-related disease in the right context such as a sausage-shaped pancreas or infrarenal periaortitis. Yet radiologic findings in isolation are inadequate to diagnose IgG4-related disease in the absence of other appropriate clinical, lab, and biopsy findings. The one exception to this may be type 1 autoimmune pancreatitis, which appears as a sausage-shaped pancreas with a halo of edematous tissue surrounding it and irregular narrowing of the bile ducts on MRCP or ERCP. PET scan can also be helpful for staging and finding other sites more amenable to biopsy than, say for example, aortitis. The final realm of data then is histopathology. Because of the shortcomings of clinical, serologic, and radiologic data in IgG4-related disease, pathology remains the cornerstone of effective diagnosis and should be obtained by biopsy whenever possible. Yields and features can vary by site. For example, usually lymph node biopsies lack the classic features and therefore can be unhelpful. There are a few classic biopsy findings of IgG4-related disease which are helpful to know. There are five of them. The first is storiform fibrosis. This is a pattern of fibrosis with radially arranged collagen fibers that weave through the tissue. 
kind of like petals radiating out from the center of a flower. It's not diagnostic, but highly characteristic. Storyform fibrosis. The second feature is obliterative phlebitis. This is a venous finding, whereby you get partial or total obliteration of medium-sized veins. There's a dense lymphoplasmacytic infiltrate in the lumen and walls of veins. Obliterative phlebitis. The third hallmark is a dense polyclonal lymphoplasmacytic infiltrate with IgG4 positive plasma cells. Simply put, you get CD4 positive cytotoxic T lymphocytes and IgG4 positive plasma cells infiltrating the tissue, aka you have a lymphoplasmacytic infiltrate. It's helpful if your pathologist can quantify the exact concentration of IgG4 positive plasma cell infiltrate, which is seen on immunostaining. These are seen diffusely throughout the affected lesions, and the absolute concentration expected varies by tissue type, but a ratio of at least 40% IgG4 positive to IgG positive plasma cells is much more convincing of true IgG4-related disease. The last frequent finding in tissue is a mild tissue eosinophilia. Now, the classic biopsy findings are not perfect. In the classification criteria cohort I mentioned earlier, over a third of patients lacked the classic pathologic features. And IgG4-positive lymphoplasmacytic infiltrates can be seen in mimickers of IgG4-related disease, including ankyovasculitis, multicentric Castleman's disease, cancers, etc., This once again just highlights that you cannot look at any one realm of histopathology, clinical presentation, serology, nor radiologic features in isolation to confirm or refute the diagnosis of IgG4-related disease. It is but one data point. An important data point, but still just one data point. One last thing about biopsies. If you see necrotizing features like granulomas and neutrophilic infiltrates, These are highly unusual for IgG4-related disease and should suggest a different process. Classification. In rheumatology, you'll seldom hear us mention diagnostic criteria, probably because our diseases can be so hard to pin down and therefore to confidently diagnose. Instead, we have classification criteria. These are helpful to identify homogeneous populations whom you can be relatively sure have the disease of interest for research purposes. I don't love talking much about classification criteria for this reason. They're often too specific or elaborate and not meant to be used for the basis of diagnosing patients because many patients would not meet these criteria. But that said, the IgG4 classification criteria released by ACR and ULAR in 2019 can be a pretty helpful framework of major features of this disease. Let me be clear. I am not recommending you spend hours memorizing this, far from it, but I do suggest you refer to it when evaluating a possible case of IgG4-related disease because they list some really helpful inclusion and exclusion criteria, which if you end up using, result in an 82% sensitivity and a 98% specificity. These criteria also recognize that you sometimes can't obtain a biopsy, say for example in a patient with aortitis. And they also recognize that some patients have a normal IgG4 level, which makes it quite practical. I'll give you a few examples of inclusion and exclusion criteria here so you see what I'm talking about, and they'll likely remind you of what we spoke about earlier. 
For example, one of the inclusion criteria is periaortitis, which includes retroperitoneal fibrosis and is described as typically circumferential involving the anterolateral aspects of the aorta and tends to involve the infrarenal portion of the vessel, often extending down to the iliac vessels. Some helpful exclusion criteria then include fevers, no objective response to glucocorticoids, which they define as 40 mg a day for four weeks, positive ANCAs, or necrotizing or granulomatous abnormalities on histopathology. These are all quite practical and things we've discussed today. Quiz time. Okay, guys, true or false? Fevers are a common feature of IgG4 related disease. False. There is no such thing as acutely fulminant disease. IgG4 is not aggressively inflammatory and therefore will not cause fevers nor rapid organ failure. In fact, fevers are actually an exclusion criteria according to the ACR ULAR classification criteria. Next, can you name three orbital manifestations of IgG4 related disease? Okay, number one, decryoadenitis or inflammation of the lacrimal glands. Number two, retroorbital pseudotumors. And number three, extraocular muscle myositis. Next question. Can you name eight other manifestations of IgG4-related disease? I'll give you a couple seconds. Just think about that. Okay, so I'm going to go head to toe. Pachymeningitis, hypophysitis, sialadenitis, thyroiditis, ILD, fibrosing mediastinitis, pleural effusions and thickening, type 1 autoimmune pancreatitis, IgG4-related sclerosing cholangitis, tubulointerstitial nephritis, aortitis, retroperitoneal fibrosis, and along the same lines, mesenteric fibrosis. Name the five classic findings of IgG4-related disease on biopsy. Okay. One, storiform fibrosis. Two, obliterative phlebitis. Three, polyclonal lymphoplasmacytic infiltrate. Four, IgG4-positive plasma cells. 5. Mild tissue eosinophilia. If you only have room for 4 on your exam question, combine IgG4 positive plasma cell infiltrate and lymphoplasmacytic infiltrate as one answer, and if you only have 3, then probably leave out the eosinophilia to just respond with storiform fibrosis, obliterative phlebitis, and IgG4 positive lymphoplasmacytic infiltrate. Last question. Can you name five differentials for IgG4-related disease? Okay, so cancers like pancreatic cancer, blood diseases like multicentric Castleman's or other causes of eosinophilia like parasites, vasculitis that can cause aortitis like giant cell arteritis, anchovasculitis is a really big one, 
along the lines of salivary gland disease, Sjogren syndrome, and other hepatobiliary diseases like primary sclerosis and cholangitis or cholangiocarcinoma. Management. IgG4-related disease is a rare condition that's only now becoming more appreciated and more commonly diagnosed. So as of now, most of the treatment strategies are primarily based on expert recommendations. Your goals in treating a patient are to reduce their inflammation and thereby induce remission, then to maintain that remission and preserve organ function, all the while attempting to reduce adverse effects of treatment. This last point is of particular importance because remember, these are middle-aged to older patients, many of whom have now a compromised pancreas. So diabetes, hypertension, osteoporosis, peptic ulcer disease, glaucoma are all of significant concern when you're putting these individuals on steroids. Almost everyone is going to require medication. The international guidance statement on IgG4-related disease management suggested watchful waiting is an appropriate option for some patients with asymptomatic lymphadenopathy or submandibular gland enlargement. But realistically, your watchful waiting approach will be for a small minority of patients. Disease activity can mislead you by fluctuating, but any spontaneous improvements are generally temporary, even after long periods of quiescence. So pretty much anyone with active symptomatic disease needs medications. If you do go with the watch and wait approach, you might do Q6 monthly follow-ups with CBCs and differentials for the eosinophil count, a creatinine, IgG subtypes, IgE levels, C3 and C4 to monitor their kidneys, and imaging of any affected areas. So, induction therapy. Ideally, induction therapy should be implemented early because there's a window of therapeutic opportunity during the inflammatory phase when the tissues are characterized primarily by a lymphoplasmocytic infiltrate and therefore are more likely to shrink with steroids, whereas at a later stage, it's in the fibrotic phases and cellular components are rare. Steroids are the backbone of induction therapy, plus or minus a DMARD, though evidence for them is weak. Starting doses of steroids are very reasonably 0.5 milligrams per kg, and there's data which shows no difference in successive induction between 0.5 and higher doses of steroids, except in cases where patients have higher burdens of organ involvement at baseline, in which case they do have a higher risk of relapse. Usually a dose of 30 to 40 milligrams a day of prednisone or an equivalent is probably fine since the disease is so steroid sensitive. That said, if you have severe disease like cranial or spinal disease and need something to bail you out ASAP, you can pulse them for three days with Medrol and then go to the lower prednisone doses as described. Most patients will respond within days to weeks. If they don't, you need to reconsider your diagnosis. This is a very important point because IgG4-related disease is steroid responsive, tremendously so, to the point where the ACR-ULAR criteria count non-response to steroids and exclusion criteria. Generally, steroids can be tapered off within three to six months, but that can be stretched out depending on the burden of disease. Now, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but truth be told, even though it's such a steroid-sensitive disease, about 40% of patients with IgG4-related disease will either not achieve total remission and or will relapse by the one-year mark, even if you maintain them on low-dose steroids. So largely, you can expect steroids to unfortunately ultimately fail to control inflammation once tapered to a low dose. 
Longer-term data suggests that anywhere between 46 and 90% of patients flare by three years from the time of diagnosis, whether during the steroid taper or after steroid discontinuation. Now, you may save the patient and yourself some pain by adding a DMAR to the mix right from the get-go to improve the likelihood of long-term remission, and you'd consider it even more strongly when there are predictors which point to higher risk of relapse, including a high baseline IgG4 level, high baseline IgE level, peripheral eosinophilia, multi-organ involvement, or if your patient happens to be a younger woman with head and neck limited disease. We'll discuss specific DMARDs in a couple of minutes, but first let's just talk about maintenance therapy in general terms in IgG4-related disease. Which patients should receive maintenance therapy and with which drugs and for how long is still up for debate. Remember though that relapse rates are high and those same indicators that we just mentioned, multi-organ involvement, high baseline IgG4, IgE, peripheral eosinophilia, These are the individuals at highest risk of relapse and therefore may benefit most from ongoing maintenance therapy. And maintenance therapy can be carried out using either steroids at a low dose or DMARDs. And practice patterns largely vary by geography. So option one, steroids. Well, we know that low-dose prednisone does help reduce the flare risk. If you look at the type 1 autoimmune pancreatitis data, half of patients flare without baseline steroids and one quarter flare with baseline steroids. Wait, what? One quarter flare with baseline steroids? But that's a ton. Yes, correct. Despite low-dose steroids and IgG4-related disease, many patients will flare. Hence, maintenance therapy with low-dose steroids is probably not your best long-term solution. If you don't have much of another option, Try 5 to 7.5 milligrams per day because flare risk inversely correlates with the dose. So once you go below 5 milligrams PO daily, there's a substantially higher flare risk. And that brings us to CS or conventional synthetic DMARDs. So what about these agents? Well, mycophenolate, leflunamide, methotrexate, azathioprine, cyclophosphamide, tacrolimus, these have all been tried in IgG4-related disease and are still employed in practice today. But unfortunately, the data is not slam dunk here either. While they certainly add benefit both for induction of remission and maintenance of remission, conventional synthetic DMARDs are way less than optimal at inducing a durable remission in IgG4-related disease, even if you combine them with low-dose steroids up to one year. Meta-analysis data demonstrated that combined conventional synthetic DMARDs and steroids improve the odds of inducing remission and preventing flares threefold. However, even with that, there's an over 10 to 20% relapse rate in the prospective trials looking at the efficacy of low-dose mycophenolate, oral cyclophosphamide, and leflunamide. And this is despite concomitant low-dose steroids in individuals taking DMARDs. I'll say that again, despite being on both DMARD and low-dose steroids, patients have an over 10 to 20% risk of relapse. So, is there a hero to save the day? Yes. Well, kind of. I'm talking about B-cell depleting therapy, which is highly effective, but still not perfect. It's felt B-cells are central in the pathogenesis of IgG4-related disease. 
so it makes sense we turn to rituximab as a treatment option. And it works well for both induction in combination with steroids and as a maintenance therapy. In terms of dosing, you can use either the one gram two weeks apart regimen or 375 milligrams per meter squared times four weekly infusions. For maintenance therapy, two separate European groups have both demonstrated effectiveness of periodic administration of rituximab at fixed dosing intervals, like one gram as a single dose every six months for maintenance. With Ritux, you'll see a reduction in the serum IgG4 level and improvement in other markers of disease activity as well. Certainly, meta-analysis data shows that rituximab is far superior to conventional synthetic DMARDs for treatment of IgG4-related disease. But don't have too big a celebration party just yet, because there's good data showing that even with rituximab, relapse risk is significant in IgG4-related disease, telling us that we just need to push a little bit harder to find better treatments for this condition. And that's a really nice segue into pipeline drugs, which I'll get to in a second. But before I do that, I just wanna summarize treatment briefly so the messages are very clear. For induction, 0.5 milligrams per kg per day of prednisone is fine. That means 40 milligrams PO daily of prednisone is a reasonable dose in the majority of individuals and can usually be tapered over three to six months unless you feel they're at higher risk of relapse or complications. While this disease is very steroid sensitive, the risk of failed induction and particularly relapse are huge, especially at lower steroid doses. Therefore, strongly consider conventional synthetic DMARD therapy, for example, mycophenolate, azathioprine, and leflunamide are all reasonable options. And even better, if you can get your hands on it, is rituximab. For maintenance therapy, low-dose steroids are an option, but not really less than 5 to 7.5 milligrams PO daily. And strongly consider a conventional synthetic DMARD, or once again, even more ideally, rituximab if you can get access to it. A reasonable regimen may be a single rituximab dose of one gram IV every six months. The duration of maintenance therapy is quite unclear, but a commonly employed strategy by experts is to discontinue maintenance therapy after three years of clinical, serologic, and radiologic remission. If you're trying to decide what kind of risk your patient might have for relapse, if you're thinking you might want to lengthen out the steroid taper, or you might want to be a little bit more aggressive with your DMARDs, then predictors of relapse include multi-organ involvement at baseline, high baseline IgG4 levels, high baseline IgE levels or eosinophilia, and the phenotype of young Asian females with head and neck limited IgG4-related disease. So that's the summary. I'm just going to briefly mention some pipeline drugs that are currently being evaluated. If you want to fast forward about a minute or so to the prognosis section, that's fine. If you're interested, feel free to stick around. I do not think this is going to show up on an exam. But I do believe that the treatment of IgG4-related disease will look different in the next five-ish years or so. Overall, there are a few drugs that are being tested out with different mechanisms of action that are quite interesting and so far have some promising data behind them in small preliminary trials. For example, inibilizumab or uplizna is an antibody to CD19 that's already used in neuromyelitis optica. 
Lots of literature talks about XMAB5871, obexelimab from Zencor. It's an interesting antibody that finds the CD19 positive cells, a super reliable surface marker for B lymphocytes, with its variable domain. Then it uses its FC domain to target another receptor that inhibits B cell function called FC gamma R2B, and thereby it inhibits B cells, but doesn't destroy them. Phase two data so far looks pretty good, but that data is from back in 2017, 2018, and nothing's really been raised since then. So I'm not sure if they're dropping their focus on IgG4-related disease and instead focusing on the bigger markets of rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. Emplicity, or elotuzumab, is a monoclonal antibody you might have heard of in multiple myeloma targeting SLAM-F7, which is a surface marker also found on B-cells. This is a very rational therapeutic target. Some of the most excitement right now is being generated around a Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitor called Rilzabrutinib. A trial on this drug is currently underway, and the theory is quite good in that this drug should target multiple facets of IgG4-related disease-associated pathophysiology, meaning fibrosis and inflammation more broadly. And lastly, there was a fair amount of excitement around abatacept, a well-known co-stimulation modulator. Unfortunately, the results really don't look that hot, so abatacept probably is not a treatment we're going to be seeing for IgG4-related disease in the future. Prognosis. When you're monitoring patients and evaluating disease activity, some of the serologic indices we previously mentioned can come in quite handy. So your serum IgG4 level, or even better, your IgG4 to IgG or IgG4 to IgG1 ratios, your eosinophil counts, IgE levels, plasma cell concentrations, these should all decrease with response to treatment. Minor oscillations in these levels are normal and don't automatically imply disease flare. Just a word of caution, these levels may not totally normalize, especially in those with marked elevations at presentation. For example, up to 63% of patients will not have a normal IgG4 level by the end of treatment. Something else worth noting is that 10% of patients who flare won't have a repeat spike in their serum IgG4 level. ESR can come in handy, and CRP particularly so when you've got aortitis or retroperitoneal fibrosis. C3 and C4 are worth monitoring to make sure the patient's not developing nephritis. And if your healthcare system has a ton of money to blow, then PET scans can be quite helpful. Probably the biggest takeaway for prognosis is that nearly all patients will respond to steroid therapy, but about 40% will either not achieve total remission and or will relapse at one year, even if you use low-dose maintenance steroids between 5 and 10 milligrams PO daily. That risk of relapse is highest in individuals who have a high number of organs involved at baseline, individuals who have higher serum baseline levels of IgG4, eosinophils, and IgE. Quiz time. Question one. Which conventional synthetic DMARDs are commonly employed with steroids in IgG4-related disease? And which biologic? So azathioprine, mycophenolate, methotrexate, tacrolimus, leflunamide, all commonly employed. Cyclophosphamide has data behind it, but not really used that commonly because nobody likes cyclophosphamide. And the best biologic is rituximab. 
question two, can you name a few poor prognostic markers in IgG4-related disease? Okay, here we go. High baseline eosinophils, high baseline IgE levels, high baseline IgG4 levels, and a higher number of organs involved at baseline. And the last question before we wrap up for today is what do you do if IgG4 levels do not normalize after therapy, but the patient appears completely fine and radiology demonstrates no evidence of worsening disease? Nothing. Many patients with IgG4-related disease will have persistently elevated IgG4 levels even after successful treatment. And that's it for today, guys. Great job on making it through this topic. You deserve a well-earned break. If you enjoyed today's session, please subscribe. I would also tremendously appreciate your feedback in the form of an Apple podcast review, or feel free to email me with suggestions for future episodes, content accuracy, or sound issues. My email is room for the RC. That's R-H-E-U-M-F-O-R-T-H-E-R-C at gmail.com. Have a great one.